You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. This is season four, so it's episode one of season four. And for those who have never listened before, I'm Sally. And I'm Zach. And we are the hosts of Vernacular Podcast. Yes. We are very excited for season four. We are very busy lining up exciting guests and bringing back our contributors to talk about interesting and fun topics. And actually speaking of our contributors, we have something special lined up for this inaugural episode of season four. Yeah, for the first time ever, we had a contributor roundtable, and we recorded our crazy conversation about a million different things, and we explained more about that in the recording of that that discussion. But before we get to that, we wanted to acknowledge the Orlando shooting that happened a few weeks ago now. Yeah, so we are, we're a little bit late in commenting on this just because we've been in our season break, but since this is our first chance to talk about it, uh, we just want to acknowledge the extraordinary pain that people who are victims in that attack are going through. Uh, I know everyone's heard about this already, but 50 people dead in that 12 June shooting, 53 injured, countless others, family, friends who are severely affected by this, employees at the club who don't have jobs anymore. Yeah, I think it's kind of one thing that just struck me reading all the coverage of it. It was the 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 biggest mass shooting, right, in, in American yeah, history? Yeah, by a single gunman, I think. Okay, and... And yet those are not the only victims of the crime. There are 49 innocent victims, but there's all those people injured, all of their families, the people who lost their job when when the club closed, people who are just friends and who are emotionally recovering. So really the the the, the victims, the number of victims is much higher than even the yeah. highest mass I mean, those simple in, numbers don't tell the story of how, right. many, how many people really are affected by it. Yeah. So we just wanted to say we're praying for them and – um, we didn't want to let that tragedy go unmentioned on this podcast. Yeah, so we definitely encourage you, our listeners, to join with us in praying for all of the, all of the victims, all the people affected. Uh, it's also not too late to get involved, um, especially through monetary donations. So uh, there are a lot of campaigns out there. I think by last count, GoFundMe.com had 150 different fundraisers related to this. Um, there are some concerns about some of them being fraudulent. So. One that should be good is oneorlando.org. This was started by the Orlando mayor uh, specifically to raise money for the uh, the care of the victims in this attack. So head to uh, oneorlando.org if you want to get involved and uh, put your money to a good cause. Yeah, I heard that uh, a guest amongst all of those campaigns, $4 million was raised within the first few days. And that sounds like a lot of money, but then when you think of it spread over so many people and many of it going towards just paying for people's medical bills, um, it's not actually a lot of money. So if you want to donate, don't hesitate to. Yeah, please do not. Um, so that's it from us for the prefatory comments before we uh, kick off this roundtable here. But as Sally mentioned, uh, we're pretty excited to sit down with the contributors and all talk about uh, different topics. We're all bringing something to the, well, all of our contributors are bringing uh, bringing a topic to the table, and you'll hear a little bit more about that in just a few minutes. We're back with Vernacular Podcast, and I'm here with five other people and Zach. So we have a very big group, and we are really excited to talk about everything 
because everybody has brought some sort of contribution to our table. We don't actually have a shared table. Zach and I are sharing a table, but right. no one else is at that table. We are all together over Skype. And I really like to imagine that we're all sitting around that little table in your in your kitchen, though, Sally. Okay, we can we can. It's imagine actually that. in our closet, which yeah. is our makeshift sound studio. <laughs> our even smaller table okay, in well, our closet. I'm in Sally Zach's closet, and it's a really I'm hot closet. So I think table. you should all be happy that you're not sitting in our closet right now. It gets right very now. warm in there. <laughs> yes, it, it, ex- it explains why they're they're pushing us to just hurry up and do this. Is because we're all comfortable and sitting in a closet. We need some air conditioning. <laughs> so. Each person is going to chat for a second, explain what they want to share, and then we're going to all talk about it and then move on to the next person. So I guess I didn't mention that all of these people are contributors. To start us off, we have Margaret. Margaret, what do you have for us today? Um, so today, so I've been reading this um, travel journal by John Steinbeck, which embarrassingly, since I'm from California, this is the only work by John Steinbeck I've ever read. Um, he, when he was in his late fifties, decided to drive across the country, um, with his King Poodle. And the main purpose was to sort of get to know America, which he had been writing about for so long, but which he hadn't actually seen. He had traveled the world, obviously as a prominent writer. Um, but he had settled in on Long, Long Island and had just not really connected back with, um, the place that he was writing about. And, um, it's full of all these funny little stories and, um, wonderful, uh, discussions about place and, um, and so forth. But he has, you know, of course, as a writer, um, he has this great discussion about speech. Um, and, um, I'll just read a couple, couple clips from it. It's a, it's a longer passage, but, um, well, it's about a page and a half. Um, but I'll read a couple clips from it real quick and yeah, that'd be great. Um, then introduce some questions. So, <clears throat> uh, this is Steinbeck. One of my purposes was to listen, to hear speech, accents, speech rhythms, overtones, and emphasis S- for speech is so much more than words and sentences. I did listen everywhere. And it seemed to me that regional speech is in the process of disappearing, not gone, but going 40 years of radio and 20 years of television must have this impact. Communications must destroy localness by a slow, inevitable process. Um, And then he goes on, talks a little bit about that. He says he doesn't find that many places where there's regional speech. Um, And then he he finishes off with this really interesting observation. Even while I protest the assembly line production of our food, our songs, our language, and eventually our souls, I know that it was a rare home that baked good bread in the old days. Mother's cooking was, with rare exceptions, poor. That good, unpasteurized milk, touched only by flies and bits of manure, crawled with bacteria. The healthy old-time life was riddled with aches, sudden death from unknown causes, and that sweet local speech I mourn for was a child of illiteracy and ignorance. It is in the nature of man as he grows older, um, a small bridge in time, to protest against change, particularly change for the better. But it is true that we have exchanged corpulence for starvation, and either one will kill us. The lines of change are down. We, or at least I, can have no conception of human life and human thought in 100 years or 50 years. Perhaps my greatest wisdom is the knowledge that I do not know. The sad ones are those who waste their energy in trying to hold it back, for they can only feel bitterness in loss and no joy in gain. Um, so that's the passage. Um I guess I, I think that 
that last um, that last paragraph is so interesting, right? Like comparing it to like um, we, the language was born out of illiteracy and um, ignorance, uh, just the same way that you know the the milk was crawling with bacteria and um, people died of sudden causes unknown to us. And then he has this really interesting kind of like curmudgeonly argument for progress, I feel like. Like there's, you know, we rail against change, but we, but maybe there's, there's something good for it. Um, but then that interesting question, we've exchanged corpulence for starvation and either one will kill us. Um, and he's talking, this was in 1961. So this was 50 years ago, 55 years ago. And, and, um, I guess I'm just wondering what, what people think of what he's putting forward here. And also, you know, here we are 50 years later. Um, what, what do we think of, of regionalness and localness in speech or, or in general? So, uh, my first reaction is, uh, what you just read reminds me of this meme I saw earlier this week <laughs> that talked about how <laughs> talked about how uh, it had a picture of uh, I think a household from the 19th century or or maybe even the 18th century and it said that uh, back in the day people ate food without GMOs or hormones and pesticides and they lived to the mm -hmm. They lived to the ripe old age of died in childbirth. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, so I was really interested in the food part, um, Margaret, because that was, you know, you had talked about that on the podcast before. And I think there is something so, I mean, he's not wrong that Wonder Bread is soulless, right? But um, he's also not wrong that unpasteurized milk, you know, Pache Julia can kill you. Right. Um, and it seems like maybe what the, what he's doing, whether, whether intent, whether this was exactly what he meant to say or not, I'm not sure, but what it says to me is something about the sort of inherent tragedy of the human experience that even as we make progress, we're really just exchanging. Um, and actually this is funny. One of my favorite professors in college he taught what Western civilization, the history of Western civilization, and he said the real definition of progress is exchanging your old problems for new problems that you like better. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So there's something to that. Um, I mean, I don't think he's wrong that there are things that once you lose, you can't get back, um, which I don't think is true of food. Right. You know, there's been this huge renaissance in food in right. some ways that you talk and about. going. Yeah. So many people are going back to making their own breads and, you know, um, learning how, uh, relearning all the nutritional things that we kind of lost in, right. you know, canned foods, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But you do not hear people with regional accents, you know, talking on the television. They all sound like they're from the Midwest. Right. Yeah. Is yeah. it bad that I... It doesn't really that doesn't bother me as much as maybe other forms of progress. Like it's interesting that he that entire passage he spends talking about the lost aspects of speech or the lost kind of differences in our speech. And right. I don't know if I've really ever stopped to think about that too much or or is that I mean, do you think he's really concerned about that in and of itself or is there some sort of metaphor for some other losses that we've oh, had because of progress? 
I mean, I think he he is really deeply concerned with that specifically and all of it. Right. Like the food thing is something that we can all access um, and and talk about. And that's why we latch on to that analogy. But he's talking about speech. And so then, like, that's a great question. And if I can play the devil's advocate, like and or be on his side a little bit. Right. Like, OK, we've lost reason, regional speech. We've also lost regional literature. You know, I mean, we like the easiest one is the Southern writers, Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy and stuff like that. But where are the Southern writers of today? And and there are people who clearly are speaking of a place and in the language patterns of a place. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, we don't ha- we don't have anything like that today, um, at least in the written word. I think it's it's hard pressed to find. And it's certainly not. um a broad cultural thing, which I think, um, maybe we'll talk a little bit more on it with one of the other topics. Right. But, um, you know, what is lost when we have one language? Well, and this just occurred to me, um, when you were talking about regional literature, but reading, for instance, Faulkner or Twain, where right. there are these dense dialects of sorts, mm-hmm. I, I think there's definitely something lost when you realize, as I think of myself, when I had to read Faulkner for a class last spring semester, it's almost offensive to me that I have to work so hard to understand it. Like, right. I was, you know, I was like, this is too hard. Why can't they just talk normally? And then you're like, and is this still English? <laughs> right. Like they're with me, not with the author. I mean, there's, there's something valuable in that kind of writing that, we don't appreciate when we have been accustomed to hearing everyone sound the same in the same way that it's harder to appreciate, you know, good multi-grain bread when you're accustomed right. to one bread. To go back to right. the analogy, that's easier for us. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Well, this is all very exciting, but unfortunately we don't have time to go further. Let's transition to uh, another topic. So, Kevin, what do you have for us? Oh, great. So uh, the the article I selected um, is called Solitude and Leadership, and it was um, it's actually a lecture that was given by a public scholar by the name of William DeRachewitz, uh to the freshman class at uh, the United States Military Academy at West Point uh, a couple years ago. And the title of the article, again, Solitude and Leadership, is kind of his central theme is this apparent contradiction between um, solitude, which implies being alone, and, and leadership, which sort of inherently implies uh, being with other people, uh, leading other people. And he talks about this uh, sort of contradiction and and presents it as actually uh, sort of a necessary one in the sense that uh, because we are so focused in society today on uh, multitasking and and extracurriculars and and having these great applications and um, being able to constantly surround ourselves with ideas or thoughts or uh, kind of pithy one-liners from the internet that we've actually uh, failed to encourage depth of thought, which requires concentration, requires being uh, at times solitary. And he says the result. So I think a perfect is, example of this would be me citing a meme in response to. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. Margaret's very <laughs> profound contribution. Steinbeck. Oh, this meme I saw the other day. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He, um, I'll, I'll just briefly quote uh, from the speech. He says, uh, we have a crisis of leadership in America because our overwhelming power and wealth earned under earlier generations of leaders made us complacent 
And for too long, we have been training leaders who only know how to keep the routine going, who can answer questions but don't know how to ask them, who can fulfill goals but don't know how to set them, who think about how to get things done but not whether they're worth doing in the first place. What we have now are the greatest technocrats the world has ever seen, people who have been trained to be incredibly good at one specific thing but who have no interest in anything beyond their area of expertise. What we don't have are leaders. What we don't have, in other words, are thinkers, people who can think for themselves, people who can formulate a new direction for the country, for a corporation or a college, for the army, a new way of doing things, a new way of looking at things, people, in other words, with vision. And so just to kind of get a conversation going, um, I was wondering if uh, kind of writ large the group thinks that Dereshowitz has properly diagnosed this problem, if it actually is a problem at all, or if it exists, or is he making something up? Um, and kind of just what people think about the, uh, the idea he's presenting that we've lost the element of solitude, which is essential to developing good leadership. I would totally agree that we've lost the, we've lost a value for solitude. Absolutely. And the connection to leadership. I mean, I think good leaders have always been scarce, but maybe they're more scarce now than they have been before. But just the fact that it, takes so much effort to get away from electronics or to get away from everything that inundates us all the time. Even if you're alone, or I don't know if you, any of you've heard of 21 pilots, but they had one song in particular that, uh, that was very popular called car radio. And, uh, basically the, the gist of the song was, um, my car, someone stole my car radio and now I have to sit with, sit in silence with myself and just the challenge of that. And we have something all the time to distract or, um, or just to keep us from, from getting too far into our thoughts. And, um, so I think there's definitely, a, uh, we, we certainly don't have much value for solitude. And as far as leadership development, I mean, I guess uh, it's just an interesting correlation that he makes in that article because it's so true that good leaders are really hard to find, um, people of character, people of integrity, um, and, and beyond that, even just people who can think creatively and work with a team and have all of these qualities, um, combined. Um, it, I, I, I love the, at least the idea of it is very interesting mm -hmm. to me because I, I see both of those things existing. The thing that jumped out at me from the reading was, well, it was two things at once that were really interesting when, um, the speaker was talking about the bureaucracy and the, the technocracy of government and the military, maybe in particular. Um, and one of them was the fact that this was not unintentional, right? So Woodrow Wilson, for instance, had this whole theory that the way to make American government great was to make it more bureaucratic and to just have people specialize in their one little thing that they knew how to do really well. And not try to do anything else and not try to think about anything else. Um, and then there's a great study of the Cuban Missile Crisis called the Essence mm. of Decision. Right, that's Graham Allison's book. Right? right, so good. I had to read it this spring. And um, he talks about how we always assume that states acting in the international realm have this, you know, broad, almost infinite range of options. And one of the points that he makes is that that's actually not true at all because so much governmental action is the result of institutional processes. And those things are very limited to, you know, cultures and standards of operation and all of those things. So that actually when leaders 
are trying to make really important decisions like what to do when you find out there are nuclear weapons in Cuba, um, you really only have a limited range of, of options. And that was, seemed to be exactly the point that um, he was trying to make, or at least part of it, that leadership requires us to break out a little bit from that mm-hmm. approach where, uh, you know, our options are just churned out of the factories of the bureaucracy in this really rote way. Um, so it does seem really clear to me that the kind of independent thinking that he's talking about, which I do think requires lots of solitude and um, deep thought, really can change the way that you know our nation works. And his example of Petraeus was a great one to illustrate that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Muriel. I think um, I wonder if well, I wonder if we if part of the reason why we're lacking leaders, if 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 we're assuming that he's right, that we're lacking the kind of leaders he's talking about, is because we don't really understand what it means to be a leader, and so we're not communicating that to the next generation what what it is to be a good leader. We're saying you should lead, you should you know whether however old how old they are, elementary school or something, you should you should be a leader, and maybe we say that. But it's not really clear what that means, if that just means striking out for the sake of striking out or being the dominant personality or corralling your peers or something like that. But it's not really communicated what, what all does that really entail and what does it mean to think outside the box like you were, you were describing, Muriel, and what does it mean to apply that in a leadership context? Yeah, and to me that was – I mean – it's fascinating to think about it in the broader political structure, but it's also interesting to look at it in our own lives, right? Like I'm the leader of a restaurant. What does that mean? Well, for me, it's, it's always like, look, I do whatever it takes. And I hope that everybody sees that what we have to do is whatever it takes, but that's not the same thing as being a leader. That's being an example maybe, but I actually have to make them want to and do whatever it takes to get through the day, get through the shift make us a better place, et cetera. Um, and that's like, I, I don't feel equipped at all to do that, um, on a daily basis. It's like, this was such an interesting to sort of break out of that mindset and say, no, to lead, you actually have to, like, you have to draw something out of people, you know, um, and be separate from them, not just be an example. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, sorry, guys, I have to cut this off and move on to Muriel. Okay, so the piece that I wanted to discuss has to do with the criminal justice system, which we've talked about before on the podcast. Um, And it was an article written by a public defender about the Stanford rape case and why it was that um, Brock Turner received such a lenient sentence for the horrific crime that he committed. and this woman was suggesting, I think quite powerfully, and she had a lot of evidence to back it up, that part of the reason, it actually kind of feeds out of Kevin's article, part of the reason that we end up with such gross disparities in sentencing has to do with the power of imagination. So she talks specifically about how this judge, who is a white man who graduated from Stanford, um, so in other words, sees a lot of himself in this criminal, um, has a difficult time picturing him in prison. And so there's something that doesn't sit right with him about the idea of this, you know, athletic 
20-year-old white kid in prison, and so he is more willing to consider a lenient sentence, whereas the public defender who wrote the article was saying, look, all of my clients are poor, and many of them are people of color. It's very easy for judges to imagine these people who don't show up necessarily in a suit, who don't necessarily have, you know, a very refined way of speaking or whatever, and they don't have all of these advantages that this young man was born with. Um, it's much easier for the judge to imagine those people in prison, and so more of them end up there. Um, I thought that that was a really powerful point, and it brought up to me the issue that has been on my mind a lot in the past few years, which is the existence of unconscious bias in sort of public life generally and in the criminal justice system in particular, because I know a lot of people who, if you asked them whether they thought that white people were superior to people of color, would say, of course not, that's ridiculous. Um, you know, we're all equal in dignity. And yet, in some ways, their behavior belies that claim. And there's a lot of research on that as well. So um, I don't know. I mean, I think if we're going to talk about the pursuit of justice in the United States, these are questions that we have to address as a society. And I would just be curious what people think about that concept of, um, you know, how fair can a trial really be if the person sentencing you is either very easily able to identify himself with you or views you as something completely other to himself and how that affects um, how that affects the outcome of your case and then ultimately your life. And if they don't even know whether or not they identify fully with you, right? Because exactly. you're saying the unconscious bias, like if they're, if they're, you have a person who's going to be on a jury or participated in a trial in some way and they they are trying to be honest about it and trying to make sure that they are going about it in an honest way. They can't even clearly diagnose themselves and their own perspective. That's kind of scary. Well, and the really interesting thing about the research on unconscious bias, sorry, I don't mean to monopolize, but the really interesting thing about that is that one of the ways to get it to go away is to point it out. People are really resistant to the idea that they themselves could be biased, but if it can be demonstrated to them in some way, the research shows that it tends to diminish. So that's something to think about. Well, I wonder if this ties a little bit into uh, even Kevin's article and um, the fact that in whatever position of leadership you might be, whether you're a judge or a general, um, it requires a certain amount of, it requires that objectivity and pulling yourself away from from the the case, from the, the people that you're overseeing in order to make those tough calls. Um, and uh, I mean, it's a, we have a culture that is, that chooses to be so subjective and any sense of objectivity. And I, I you know, I, I cert I, I definitely don't idolize objectivity. I think that it's a, 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 to some degree unattainable. Um, but, you know, for a culture that really doesn't value that much at all, um, I think that that contributes to the, uh, a lack of, um, uh, self-awareness, but, um, I, I think it is even a leadership thing because the judge is, uh, the judge is making decisions just like any jury would. And like you said, Muriel, <clears throat> We're, the jury goes through this rigorous process of evaluation um, in order to select, uh, a, you know, a jury of one's peers and to remove as much bias as possible. But the judge is not subject to that kind of scrutiny, at least not on a case by case basis. Yeah, that's a really good point. 
Well, it's, it, it's, I find it very interesting, um, obviously, for, for a lot of reasons. Um, I think the certainly the, when we start talking about biases, the, it, it's a very interesting road. At times, I think a very, a very dangerous one, just in the sense of um, built into that discussion are a lot of presuppositions that I, I don't know if we'll ever be able to demonstrate um, if they're true or not, just in the sense of as soon as it comes out that you know, the judge has these items in common with the individual who's being sentenced, the immediate, um, because the perception is that the sentence was so light um, in, in proportion to the crime, the people begin searching for, well, well, what could explain this? And then I think sometimes there's a, there's a tendency to latch on to, well, um, it must be because of this and this, and there's a psychoanalytical sort of perspective that goes into the conversation that I, I sometimes I, there's certainly in, in my mind is, is some there's got to be some element of truth to it, but I, I shy away from it being sort of the deterministic point, just from the sense that you know it, it's impossible to get into the individual's mind and know exactly what's going on, and and oftentimes in situations like these we are um, dealing with uh, our own perception and how it is often removed third or fourth order from. Uh, the actual individual who is making the decision. And it, it raises a lot of questions in terms of the balance of, um, you know, who is being trusted to make these sentences. And then the, the conversation of, um, you know, the jury and the balance of, of who, who is qualified to make these decisions. And then the public commentary on them and who is qualified to then um, utilize the information available to make these other pronouncements. And then it, I think there's a lot of times we get caught up in this whirlwind of um, the media and and we sometimes lose the, the standard uh, or the recognition of how difficult, in a sense, it is to ever understand what any one individual is thinking or considering at any point in time. Um, and it, it does raise a lot of, of very difficult questions um, about the nature of the justice system that I think that the, the article brings out very um, in a very effective manner. Uh, so I found it very interesting. I just, a lot of times, I, I think the, the psychoanalytical argument at times is used um, and it kind of pulled us away from, at times, the essential question, which is the truth or the objectivity of what the individual is saying, because rather than focusing on what was said or the decision that was made, people tend to start focusing on, oh, well, this person's opinion can't be relevant because of this, this, and this, and the association of this with the person being sentenced or this and that, rather than really just focusing in on exactly what determination was made. Just really quickly on that point, two quick things. One is that, you know, I think, well, of course, you're right that it's a very... Uh, tenuous proposition ever to try to read the mind of another human being. Um, we can, I think, reasonably infer some things from what the judge himself said in the sentencing. And he did say something to the effect of, you know, anything more serious or more grave than this as a punishment would have a severe impact on this young right. man's life. Right. Which is not something that you hear coming out of the mouth of a judge sentencing a black man to, you know, six months in prison for possession of 
marijuana or whatever. Um, the other thing, though, was that the article does address another very much more objective um, and I think much more easily measurable factor, which is the the way that the communities that people of various demographics are policed um, differently. So, you know, a young man who is drinking underage at a, an Ivy League college party is much less likely to be busted for possession or, you know, for underage drinking, even though it's just as much a crime when he does it as when, you know, there's someone in a more highly policed area who's caught right. doing those things. And I think that is a, that's much less, it's, it's harder to easily dismiss that argument because I think the statistics just back it up. Yeah, I mean, one thing I appreciated about this article was that it, it went from the specific case of Brock Turner to a broader question about racial disparities mm-hmm. in our justice system. I mean, it seems like every year or so the internet has a collective meltdown over the specifics of one case where all of a sudden so many mm-hmm. amateur commenters are legal experts and know exactly what the outcome should have done and know exactly how to uh, condemn the judge for the decision he or she did or did not make. Um, and th- there's been a lot of that with the Brock Turner case, but I appreciate this article turning us from the specifics of that to uh, what's really a, a broader statistical set of information that shows us that there are racial disparities in the justice system, and it leads us to think about those questions. And they are very troubling questions indeed. Yeah. Um, all right, let's go to Will. What do you have for us? Well, I'm still a bit reeling from that one the idea that there are forces within my own mind that i'm not in control of but can determine my actions it's already pretty (laughs) i know i was scared about that too (laughs) i mean the whole idea of unconscious bias is a bit bizarre i mean i'm not not saying it's not there but it is something to, to wrap your head around um something else to wrap your head around uh the thing that i chose for discussion tonight is a a bit in line with what Margaret was talking about earlier, uh, progress and what we gain, what we lose uh, when we just trade one set of problems for a set of problems that we may prefer. Uh, the particular element of progress that I want to discuss is in the field of biological engineering and specifically this thing called CRISPR, which you may or may not have heard of yet. But CRISPR is a new technique for editing genes that's vastly more efficient and more precise than any of our any, any of the techniques that have been developed to this point. It's only about four years old and already has uh, been used to do amazing things. And so in, in short, the field of genetic engineering, our, our ability as humans to genetically modify organisms and even ourselves is on the fast track right now. And I just wanted to get everyone's thoughts on what we think about that, Um, both the ethical implications of genetically modifying ourselves, uh, the exciting possibilities of curing genetic diseases. There have already been uh, people who have made great progress towards curing things like AIDS using this technique. And, uh, yeah, I'm I'm curious what everyone thinks about it. For me, I guess one of the biggest things that jumps out to me when I read about CRISPR and um, the way that they can edit genes is editing genes of future generations and being able to make changes not only to a single individual who's suffering from some sort of disease or genetic mutation, but then having that change their germ cells and so that when they reproduce, they're going to reproduce that change. And it could be a good change or 
by some people's standards, or it could be a bad change, or it could just be that we never got the consent of the future people to make that change of, on their genes. So I think that's the thing that's most troubling just just initially when I when I hear about CRISPR. I, I've it's, it's the topic of genetic engineering has always fascinated me, especially from like kind of the bioethical standpoint, and. You know, I think it's 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 hard not to be a fan of the idea of being able to um, cure so many genetic diseases. Um, and I, I kind of I wrote a piece years and years ago um, that I probably shouldn't have mentioned because I'm fairly ashamed of it now. But it's uh, it's one of those pieces where I sort of talk, tried to work through this issue about the difference between curing a genetic disorder and just displaying a preference and being able to, um, I think the article refers to them as, you know, designer babies in this whole conversation. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those really interesting topics to me because, you know, I think a large majority of people can agree that the ability to, um, you know, read the world of Tay-Sachs, something like that is, is laudable and, and would be a, a great thing, but it's, the, the, the consideration of then basically being able to modify people to, to certain specifications, I think when, once you start delving into that, you've kind of crossed a, a line that might reveal uh, some of the darker aspects of human nature that maybe are better hidden uh, by us not having the power to uh, selectively modify ourselves. So w would you say that that's an inherently bad thing for us to be able to do, or do you think we're just not ready for it? What, what exactly is bad about being able to modify our own genetic code? about being able to design the next generation? Well, I think we may, we don't really have the, the under, the full a full enough understanding of it to know what the consequences are. We can maybe, we're short-sighted enough to see what the possible benefits might be, but we really don't have a big enough understanding of the, the implications over time or, um, or, you know, just like when we started using GMOs and things like that in our in our food, um, not understanding are there, you know, increased risks of cancer or other, other side effects that we can't predict. It, it's kind of like a, a Dr. Frankenstein kind of a deal where we can, we can attempt something and we can have an expectation of good, but are we really prepared to accept uh, responsibility for it? And what would that mean to accept responsibility for it if it goes disastrously? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would suggest, though, that it's not actually about not having enough information. I mean, um, earlier this year, there was an international conference of scientists specifically designed to discuss CRISPR-Cas9. Um, ca the Cas9 refers to a CRISPR-associated protein that goes with the CRISPR technique to really accurately edit these uh, strands of DNA. But, but the consensus of this conference from the scientific community was that we need to proceed with caution because we don't have enough information. But I don't think that the issue is about having enough information because I think we have enough information now to say that that would be a bad thing. I mean, Sally's point, I totally agree with, um, and not just because I'm married to her. Uh, but <laughs> like when we talk about removing future generations' choices from uh, choices of facing adversity, that's a serious thing. So if we're doing germline therapy that removes heritable traits – from offspring that would otherwise receive those traits. I think that's problematic because you're removing the choice of future generations. But then I think the bigger thing is uh, some of the most beautiful uh, and inspiring stories of human achievement have come actually because of adversity. And that adversity has often found itself rooted in 
someone's genetics, like a propensity to have asthma or propensity to only be five foot nine, like Nate Robinson, who ended up winning the NBA slam dunk competition three times. Um, you know how much money I would pay to be five foot nine? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Way back. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm not comfortable with this argument about future generations because, uh, and maybe this isn't, I, I don't know. Like, we're always going to influence our future generations. So the question then is, like, so we can't use, I don't see using that as a standard or an argument for or against as, as beneficial. The question then is, like, like look at this thing. What, what good does it do and what, what negatives can we see? Because the, the future generation, I mean, eliminating choice of future generations, okay, fine, but, like, you know, if I don't get married, there isn't, and have kids, then there is no future generation for for me, for my particular person and and life and genetics and all of that, right? I, to me, like I I don't like the sound of any of this, but it do, that doesn't sit well. I don't know. Yeah, I think I, I think I agree with Margaret on that one. It it doesn't seem to me that genetically engineering future generations is fundamentally different from any of the other things that we try to do to benefit our children's children's children. It seems yeah. like a difference of degree and not of kind. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is why we are so uncomfortable. And I, I admit I'm uncomfortable as well with this idea of modifying our own genetics, but I'm not sure I understand my own discomfort with it. Because I, think, okay, I, I, have, everything I can oh to, to make the world a better place. So why... Why do I think somewhere in my unconscious mind that I don't have control of, yet it can control me? Why do I think somewhere in that unconscious mind that this is a bad thing? I don't know. Yeah, Muriel, go. So, if, I mean, Will, maybe you can help me with this. For me, a huge question is, what's the mechanism? So can this be done in such a way that doesn't involve severing the reproductive act from, like, in other words, can you only do this if you're doing IVF? No, uh, at least not in theory. I mean, this is all a bit experimental at, at the moment, but one of the amazing things about CRISPR is that it can be used to edit live cells or to, the edit, to edit the DNA of live cells in real time. So it's not the sort of thing that only works at the embryonic stage. Uh, potentially, you could change your own DNA, even later so on. That's gracious. I think, I think part of... Part of Moving away sort of from the utilitarian argument, if I were to say something that um, raised a question in the back of my mind is, is this technology and this ability really takes, uh, kind of decouples humanity from nature. And I think once you've done that, then you are now arbitrarily tying um, future generations, if, you, if we call it that, to the preference of the generation at the time in the sense of, there's really no longer a natural standard of what humanity is. It's going to be subject to whatever the preference at that point in time is. And that's going to be, that's going to shift as we've seen throughout kind of the, the several millennia of human history that the preference shifts over time. And so what are we actually tying ourselves and our future and our humanity to if we've decoupled it from the natural understanding of what it is? And, and to say something that might even be adventurous, uh, I think part of what people find um, troubling about genetic engineering in this sense is that um, if if we've kind of de decoupled humanity from from nature 
and have this ability, then we're, we have we can deem this sort of progress. And I think almost invariably when we talk about progress, now we're talking about scientific progress. And I think at the core of that, what people recognize as a problem is even though we have this scientific progress and we can address our preference for what humanity looks like or what it's capable of from a physical or or mental standpoint, we still have not answered the fundamental thousands of years old question of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to to have been a good person? And, and what is the meaning of our existence? And all of these questions, even with this robust ability to change the very essence of humanity, fails to answer the central question of what humanity is and what it means to, to have led a, a good and well-ordered life. And even if you think you know the answer to those questions, how are we going to choose from among people's competing answers who's going to get to be the one to choose what it means to be human yeah but when is that a new problem everybody you still i mean that doesn't come with uh, genetic modification you know you're going to have those competing arguments before that ever happens i guess i'm just inclined to agree with will um and with Margaret, that a lot of these things that we're talking about, whether it's removing an element of choice from future generations or, um, or figuring out what exactly it means to be human, everything that we are already doing in our world is impacting these issues in some way. And I think, like Will said, it's a matter of degree and not kind. Well, I was just going to say, I, um, I think it was Kevin, that it, it's interesting when you change the 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 question about like what does it mean to be human well what this is pos what in some respects this is positing is like human being human is something scientific that we can then like with greater knowledge and and greater exercise of science can then manipulate so that we can be more fully human. Well, that's a major problem, right? And then that's when all of these questions of like, okay, like Sally's point, like we're going to decide this for the future generation. This is, this is who we are. Well, that's when those now become really important parts of the conversation because already like the founding principle is something that's, that's, I mean, I would say is wrong, but like is, is, missing the real question what is it to be human to be human is not to be a bunch of cells that can be manipulated it's partially that and it but there's more than that right and um so even though like this is this is our ages i don't know the word that i'm looking for but this is our ages version of that question so then to answer it we need to get like more down to more of the fundamentals right well, right. And you have to be careful because when you're saying, okay, so is this natural? Is this not natural? And what way are we messing with nature? I mean, right. So like vaccines in some sense disrupt the natural course of things by rendering us immune to deadly diseases. I don't think that necessarily makes them bad. In fact, right. I would argue the opposite. So you just, I think that it's, you have to be really careful when you use the word natural as normative to define what you mean by it. And I do think there's, I mean, I can understand the hesitance if what you're doing is, you know, deliberately modifying genetic code. Um, but so, right, the at the same time, y- your point, Margaret, is very apt. That's what we do when we get ma- married and have children. 
there's genetic code that never existed before. There it is. Um, I don't know. I just think that it's much more complicated than saying like, oh, this is unnatural. We shouldn't do right. it. And that's, that's, that's a good point. And I, I don't want to come across as saying that because it's unnatural, we shouldn't do it. My broader point, I think, is that this, if we are going to, to shift the meaning of humanity to a, to a scientific meaning, as was sort of mentioned, and I like that sort of framework, is that we have decoupled it from anything that is really eternal, because scientific progress necessarily implies endless progression, which means endless change in terms of the paradigm is constantly shifting, and most of what is deemed as scientific knowledge, scientific certainty today, almost certainly in a hundred or a thousand years, will be deemed as folly by future generations as more knowledge is accumulated and the paradigm shifts. And so it's ultimately a question of what then are we tying our human essence to if it's not something that we can look to, to an eternal standard and say, well, this is where the essence of humanity is if we're saying, well, it, we're tying it to something that is invariably, invariably and constantly shifting. Okay, we have one more topic. Elena, take it away. All right, so I don't know if any of you watched the Tonys on Sunday, but uh, Hamilton, the musical, um, pulled in a, a historic high of 16 nominations um, and uh, pretty well-deserved. It was really it's really quite a remarkable um musical um but the article that i picked um is uh objecting to some um uh <coughs> lack of truth within within the musical things that that the musical leaves out about the story of alexander hamilton so the musical praises alexander hamilton as an immigrant as um uh, really, a self-made man who um, who became uh, one of the one of the great framers of our country and the principles that our government is founded on. But um, and so some of the lines like, "Hey yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry." Um, it, it's the the story of uh, of this immigrant um, who who became one of the elite within the country. Uh, but at the same time, Hamilton had. Hamilton had um, rather uh, a bias against the poor, against uh, the lower classes, and he really believed in um, in an aristocracy and, and hoped to promote something like that within the United States. So um, some of the questions that I was thinking about in regards to um, the Hamilton musical, first of all, so the, the review uh, that I, um, that I, that I uh, passed along to all of you said that Hamilton is arguably the most celebrated American cultural phenomenon of our time. So uh, this is a hip hop style. I mean, hip hop slash Broadway. If you listen to it, some of the ensemble parts really sound like typical Broadway, but um, so if that's true, that it's the most celebrated American cultural phenomenon of our time, what do you think contributed to that? And I mean, it's a musical about a lesser known framer. So how, how do you think it became such a phenomenon? Well, I think I'm first skeptical of the claim that it's one of the most significant cultural phenomenons of our time. That's celebrated, I think is the exact word. Celebrated. Sorry, yeah, celebrated. Um, yeah, I don't, that's, that seems like a bit of a stretch. How do you measure I mean, that? It's a really popular musical. A lot of people have talked about it. It won 11 Tonys, but like the most celebrated of our time, I don't know. Yeah, and I don't know how you come up with that anyway. Like, what even determines what what's a cultural phenomenon? Like, is there some scientific measurement of that? But at well, the same isn't time, it, 
isn't it just that it's kind of everywhere? I mean, right? It hasn't left Broadway, and yet people around the country are talking about it, are singing the songs, they're making silly skit, skits about it on late night television, et cetera, et cetera, which like granted none of these things have the kind of numbers that, um, you know, they're not quite as strong touchstones as they were when Steinbeck was writing, but, um, but still like it's kind of everywhere. It's interesting that you ask whether there's a scientific measurement of whether something is a, you know, to what extent something is a cultural phenomenon I think the answer is probably no, but really there could be. If you think about it, it is possible to measure how much time people spend on the internet watching certain videos on YouTube, you know, maybe the songs from this musical, how how many internet searches there are concerning this musical, how many people go on whatever website to try to determine if they can buy tickets or whatever. You, know, you can measure internet traffic, in other words. Now, I haven't done this, and I haven't looked at anything written by someone who has, but my guess would be that the amount of uh, foot traffic online surrounding this musical is significantly lower than the amount of foot traffic surrounding something like, I don't know, the Kardashian family, for example. Now, I'm not saying it's uh, the same sort of cultural ph phenomenon, but mm -hmm. to what extent is it the most celebrated? Well, it's probably the most celebrated musical of our time, but I don't know how big musicals really are. Well, that's one of the funny things to me, you know, that it's it's a musical. I mean, that's that's kind of uh, that's a pretty small demographic of people who are really who are really, you know, obsessed with Broadway or pay attention to these things. Like the number of people who watch the Tonys is probably pretty small. Right. Um, and it's also about, you know, someone who's lesser known within our within our American history. Um, you know, so that was a that's another question is how how appropriate is a musical as a medium for educating or exposing people to um to history because um you know you can only include so much of the story when you're creating plot and drama and these uh story arcs um so it definitely exposed people to someone who is lesser known within our history but um it's kind of a, a curious way to do that Right. So I found that part of the article really interesting, that it was sort of critiquing him for having elitist views, um, because in some ways I I'm trying to like I was trying to imagine uh, how to tell the story of a, like a historically significant figure who didn't have elitist feel like how, how can you, how can you, you know, if you, so unless you want to write like a musical about one of Thomas Jefferson's hundreds of slaves, which you could do, there would just probably not be as much fodder for a plot. Um, you know, you're like, they're American founders. Yeah. They were kind of all elitist in some ways. And, you know, people latch onto that speech that Hamilton gave at the convention. Um, yeah, he loved he loved the British political system. So there's there's that to it for sure. But he was certainly not the only one. Um, it's I think it's certainly true that the musical exaggerates the degree to which he was really an abolitionist. But I also think Miranda acknowledges those things. And Miranda being the, the writer of the musical. Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda. That he, he says, you know, to some degree, this it's not intended to be an exact historical... I mean, all of the characters are played by people of color. Like, clearly this is intended to be different in significant ways. And I think it's quite possible that emphasizing, um, you know, things that aren't quite historically accurate 
is intentional and that that brings out things about American history that we do need to learn kind of on purpose. Like it's supposed to be not quite right in some ways, I think. Yeah, I think you make a good point, Muriel, because no one goes to a musical or really any sort of kind of fun performance like that thinking, oh, I'm going to learn something that's completely true. I mean, I think the last musical we went to was the Jersey Boys. And I know that they didn't like portray everything correctly or tell the story in the correct timeline. You know, you go and you think, oh, I learned a lot about the Jersey Boys. But I don't think that that anybody thinks that they're getting, you know, a history textbook storyline of right. what I mean, really it's happened. a work of art. Yeah. 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 I mean, the first, the first show I saw on Broadway be. was Beauty and the Beast. And I was pretty sure that was not that was not, not a work of nonfiction. Mary but Poppins? I mean, really? Real. <laughs> <laughs> but that's probably I mean, one of the most remarkable things about it because you're right. People aren't coming for a history lesson. And just, I mean, even just the names of people, you know, like I bet most of the people who went to this musical didn't know who the Marquis de Lafayette was or even Alexander Hamilton himself. So I think that's a that's a pretty cool way to use something uh, in a, with kind of a surprising twist. I think yeah, and I, if it piques people's curiosity, that's fantastic. They can go back and read the stories. <laughs> I think one of the one of the things I found kind of fascinating uh, about the article, and I'm probably throwing rocks from a glass house when I say this, but uh, it, it just I just found it fascinating how you know they're talking about this it's this cultural phenomenon, and then you have this reviewer who wrote it and these historians talking about it, and they're making this commentary on something that is essentially a piece of a high culture, which is typically the sphere of societal elites. And then they're basically saying, well, the reason it's such a phenomenon and the reason people like it so much is because they just don't understand the actual historical implications of this piece. So, and they go on to criticize, well, you know, Alexander Hamilton for his elitism while they're basically preaching down to the people and saying, the only reason you like this is because you don't understand it. And so I just- That's a that really very, good point. Uh, <laughs> I found it very, very interesting. But like I said, I'm probably just- my glass house is about to get the counter stone stone at it. So. <laughs> no, I like that point. So well, I just also- looked up while we were talking, just randomly. Um, the Tony Awards last night saw a 35% increase in viewership from last year, and it's its highest ratings in 15 years. So, wow, so that's Hamilton worth. has a done people more good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say this is the only article that I've read that's uh, more than even a tiny bit critical of it. You know, I think by and large the reception. I mean, the first article that I read about it was a review, and this was back before I knew it was super popular, where it was a review in some conservative review of books, I think. It was somewhere I would not have expected it, given its general bent. Um, so I don't know. I, I sort of felt as I was reading the article, like the authors were like, someone's got to say something bad about this. Come on. <laughs> what, what can we think of? Um, and I just think ultimately the, the, their argument falls flat because the whole point of a work of art is that it's filtered through the personality of its creator. And right. if it were exactly historically accurate, like a photograph as opposed to a painting, you know, then it wouldn't it wouldn't be something that he had created it would just be something that he had transferred and I yeah. think it's genius is in the ways that it doesn't match that like do you really think they rapped at Captain? yeah <laughs> right the hip-hop <laughs> <laughs> I mean that would be cool I, but I like it happened. 
I guess to be fair, we don't know that they didn't. <laughs> That's true. We don't, we don't, well, we don't have audio recordings. Did rap exist back then? In, I mean, did really? We don't know that. <laughs> we don't know. That stretches. I think that stretches the definition of the word no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fairly confident. I bet you five bucks. I, I wouldn't bet at all. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I think we need to wrap this up, but this has been a really fun roundtable. Hopefully, we'll get to do it again soon. Thank you so much to all of you guys, our contributors, for joining us for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Yeah, it was fun. Right. Well, this wraps up our first episode of season four. It's good to be back. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you really like this and can't get enough, you can go back and check out all of our previous episodes. We are on iTunes as well as Google Play. And if you want those links, you can head over to our website, vernacularpodcast.com. Yeah, we have quite a library of old episodes for you to peruse. So don't hesitate. I love doing that when I find a podcast that I like looking back and listening to their old episodes. I mean, bear with us. The first season might have been a little rough Oh, it's at times. funny listening to what we did. <laughs> and it was only a year ago, but yeah. I think our editing skills have evolved a lot since then. Yeah. Our idea of how to make a podcast flow. <laughs> I'm not saying we're there yet. We probably have a long way to go, but it's yeah, just funny Yeah, but it's hearing. fun to, to, to watch and – I mean to listen to a podcast develop. Right. But and speaking of our first season, we actually have a new listener who started listening to our first season. That's right. Shout so. out to uh, – on Twitter – at winter underscore Burnett, who tweeted at us a little bit ago and said that she was one third of the way through the first episode of Vernacular and it was already becoming her favorite. Yeah. So hopefully, Winter, you're also listening to the newest episodes and you and hear And you're this. becoming our favorite for saying that. So <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. But speaking of Twitter, you can find us on Twitter if you haven't already at Vernacular Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast. You can rate and review us on iTunes. You should rate and review us on we iTunes or on Google Play or Overcast or you Stitcher. Can... However you're listening to us, please rate and review. You can leave comments on our website, and we will include those on our podcast. Yeah, you can email us and let us know your feedback, what you like, what you don't like, what you want to hear. Just weigh in on the conversation. We had so many conversations in the roundtable today. So if you have thoughts, let us know. It's, Zach and Sally yep. at vernacularpodcast.com. You can also check out our blog. You can get to it from our website. It's also just at blog.vernacularpodcast.com. There you can check out an article that uh, I wrote on some tips for date nights and how to have a good date night. So check that out if you get some time. Yeah, you can also see the blog post that accompanies this episode where I'll have links to all of the articles that Everything people talked about. Everything we talked about. about. Yeah. If it was mentioned, Sally will link to it. <laughs> She's good at that. All right. Well, we are excited for the next week's episode, which I don't know when that will come out, if that will come out in two weeks or one week. But yeah, true. When it does next come out. week, we're using the term next week. Yeah, in the next episode, we're bringing the shorts back, our contributors, to talk about fun topics. We always love having them on. Including, spoiler alert, how to make the perfect road trip playlist. Ooh. So if you've got a road trip coming up, you're going to want to hear that Do episode. Do not miss that episode. And Zach and I are going to chat for a long time about life. So That's right. A long time. A long time. Because At you guys least two just, hours. You know you want to catch up on our lives. I'm just so. kidding. It's not going to be that long. <laughs> well, yeah. We're going to have a chat. So it'll be a fun episode. Well, thank you so much for listening. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. You know that. Feeling better than ever. When I'm by your side.